Well, good morning. And Dave, you're right. I, I haven't had the opportunity to meet John MacArthur. In fact, you are looking, ladies and gentlemen, at the only individual left on the planet who has not heard of John MacArthur Tate. <laughs> really, I mean, that, that, that is the dead truth. Seriously, I have heard much about this ministry, and I am, I'm thrilled to be here, excited about what God is doing, and appreciate so much the emphasis that you have on the very same things that you've just seen on this little video. And as Dave said, it, it seems like we share a lot of things in common. I came in early this morning. I, I got here a little ahead of time. I, I didn't know the drive time, and so I, I made plans to be here a little bit early. And I, I came, and I was sitting here watching the guys rehearse and everybody get ready in this team that Dave was talking about earlier. It's quite impressive. And, and the thing that surprised me is I'm just sitting there, and several of you came over, introduced yourself spontaneously to me. Now, that usually doesn't happen in most Bible college-type chapel services that you go to. And not only that, when you came and introduced yourself, you said, by the way, what are you going to be speaking about this morning? And it was like, excuse me, you want to know what I'm going to be talking about this morning? Most places where I go and you have a chapel service like this, they're saying, you're the speaker, huh? What time are you going to quit? <laughs> and I thought, man, this place is a little strange, just a little different. And so I said, well, today I want to talk about vision and how to get a vision from God. One of you said, vision, huh? Kind of like what Daniel had when he saw all those strange animals. You know, it's, no, I'm not going to talk about that. I want to talk about what it means to get from God an idea of what He wants to do in and through your life. I believe with all my heart we are living in probably the most exciting time that has ever existed. And the opportunities are just absolutely incredible. And I'm disturbed because a lot of believers today really don't have any idea how they fit into all of that. And what it is that God wants to do in and through them. And so this morning, I'm going to ask you to turn to a passage that you saw at the end of this video. Turn to Habakkuk chapter 1, would you? And don't worry, I'll give you some time to find it. I, I love to... I love to talk in the Minor Prophets because everybody, you know, if they have their Bibles, they hold it real close to their chest like this. They don't want the person next to them to realize they don't have the foggiest idea where it is. But you just keep thumbing through it. It's right after Nahum, all right? That ought to help some of you locate it. I'm sure several of you had your devotions there this morning. So if, if you can find Nahum, the very next book is Habakkuk. And we're in Habakkuk chapter 1. And we'll begin with the first few verses here. And I want you to see, I want you to see this morning, not necessarily the content of Habakkuk's prophecy. Now Habakkuk was a great prophet, God used him, he had a viable and a very important message for the nation of Israel at that particular time. And all of that is very important for us to understand. But this morning, as we go to the book of Habakkuk, I'm not so concerned with spending our time analyzing the contents of his message, but rather observing the process that God took this man through to give him this vision. Because I really believe that that's what God wants to do in all of our lives. I believe that God wants to give each and every one of us a specific vision of what He wants to do in and through us. Now, when I talk about getting a vision from God, again, I'm not talking about something mystical, something spooky, something charismatic, something, uh, something in, the, in the realm of the esoteric and you're out there just kind of floating around. I'm talking about something very specific. But I'm not talking about goals and objectives either. You know, a lot of times we'll drop down a bunch of money and go to some seminar and learn how to establish goals and how to plan and how to manage time. And, and that's all very good and that's all very important. But when I talk about getting a vision from God, let me see if I can distinguish a vision that comes from God 
from what we call goals or objectives or purposes. You see, a goal is something that begins here. And, and usually the way that we approach life is we'll sit around and come up with all these good ideas and, and we'll plan them out, we'll get everything in order, and then we go to God and say, okay, God, bless this. Now, that's better than most people who don't think about God at all. But when I talk about getting a vision from God, I'm talking about something that begins not here between your ears. But I'm talking about something that begins in God's heart in heaven and is supernaturally, not mystically, but supernaturally transferred from the heart of God to your heart and to my heart and something that motivates us, something that directs us, something that guides us, something that determines the course of our life and instructs us as to how we are to be good stewards of all that God has given to us. That's what I mean when I talk about vision. Not just setting some plans and some goals for your life. That's, that's good. But what does God really want to do in your life? And, and this morning, as we spend a few minutes here in the first and second chapters of Habakkuk, I want you to observe how it is that God worked in this man's life to give him a vision, a vision that was important not only for him personally, but for his entire nation. Habakkuk lived at a time when his nation was going through all types of problems, both externally and internally. In fact, a lot like what we're experiencing today. He lived at a time when his society was crumbling around him, and, and quite frankly, as Habakkuk looked at that, he was disturbed. And that's the first point that I want to make this morning as we talk about getting a vision from God. Brokenness, being broken before God, being broken for our own need and for the need of others, is absolutely the first necessary ingredient to getting a vision from God. And that's what removes it from a cold, clinical, calculated approach of sitting down and saying, well, I've, I've calculated that uh, th here's where a need is and here's how I'm going to meet that need. And so I'm going to establish this goal and that goal. I'm talking about coming to a point in our lives when we really begin to take it personally and to heart the condition of the world in which we live. It's doing just exactly like what you're doing here at the Master's College when the goal, as I understand it, is for if not most of you, all of you, before you graduate, to invest some of your time in going to another culture, in going to another part of the world, in, in working with people and seeing what exists outside the boundaries of your own little private world. And you know what the goal is, I'm sure, and the objective of, of your leaders who, who try to encourage you in this? It, it's simply to bring you to that point of brokenness. And seeing the conditions in the world today, to feel it, to smell it, to live it, to share it, and to say, okay, God, what are you doing in all of this? Now look at what Habakkuk says in Habakkuk chapter 1. I've given you enough time, all right? Anybody still can't find Habakkuk? I'm sorry, you're in big trouble. Habakkuk chapter 1. The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. O oh Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? You ever have a prayer life like that? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. And therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. Can I tell you what Habakkuk's saying here? Habakkuk is looking out on his world. And he's seeing the decay of society, he's seeing the sin, he's seeing the corruption, he's seeing the immorality, he's seeing the, the war, he's seeing all of these things. And internally, 
He's trying to reconcile all of that with the love and the mercy and the grace of God that he's read about in the Scriptures. And quite frankly, the way that he starts this writing is absolutely incredible. He's he just simply grabbing God by the lapel, so to speak, and saying, Hey, God, what in the world are you doing? God, what's going on? God, how long am I going to pray and you don't answer me? Lord, how long are you going to let this violence continue? God, how long are we going to have to put up with all this stuff? Now, that doesn't sound like a conventional way to begin a book of the Bible, does it? But you know what? That's the type of prayer I believe that gets answers. Sometimes I think when we pray, we pray what we think God wants to hear instead of what's really on our heart. And so we come to God, O oh God, great God of our fathers, and God of the birds and the flowers and the springs and the meadows, how we love and adore Thee. And all this stuff is great, sounds good, but inside, perhaps we're burning. And perhaps we're confused and frustrated and angry. And, and the men in the Bible who got answers from God were men like Habakkuk or, or David. You remember David? How David would go to God and say, read the Psalms sometimes. God, I'm mad. I just don't understand this. And God would say, okay, David, sit down, shut up, and I'll tell you about it. He got answers because he was honest with God. And Habakkuk, evidently, was that same type of individual who goes to God and says, God, I just don't understand this. Everywhere I look, I see violence, I see a lack of justice, I see a lack of righteousness. And God, would you mind telling me just exactly what in the world is going on? And when you're going to do something and when you're going to answer that? And what begins here is a dialogue between God and Habakkuk as God prepares Habakkuk to receive a vision that he's going to give to him. But the point is, and what I want you to see, is that before Bacchus could truly, could truly get a vision from God, he had to reach that point of brokenness and to understand that God was just as concerned, more concerned about what was going on than he was. Does it really mean anything to you, what's happening in the world today? You know, it's really easy to get cold and calloused. It's, it's really easy, and, and especially at this particular stage in life, you come to college, you're getting a good education, you're planning out your life, everything's fine, and, and, and well, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and it's kind of easy to get so enclosed within yourself that it really doesn't make any difference to you what's going on everywhere else. It's real easy. As Dave said, we spent a number of years in Central America. We raised our two girls during a very violent civil war in El Salvador, and we went through some interesting experiences there. El Salvador is a very small country. It's the most densely populated country in the Western Hemisphere, and because of that, when you have a civil war, it happens in your backyard, quite literally. Uh, we counted up a friend and I one time that we'd had about 200 and some people killed within a block of our house over a two-year period. And, uh, we went to bed every night for about four or five years to the sound of automatic weapons and gunfire. Sometimes our house would be shaken 30 or 40 times a night by bombs. Occasionally would finish church services on the floor with the bullets going over and, and, and everything happened right in front of us. We'd go out in the mornings and the body trucks would be going through the streets and carrying off the bodies from the fighting the night before and it became an everyday occurrence. And you know what happens to you at a time like that? You get cold and calloused and you develop a mortician's attitude toward those things. You know, I used to read the book of Jonah as a new believer and I never could, I never could get the book of Jonah. I mean, I, I just didn't get this. Here, Jonah, he's called to be this missionary to Nineveh, and so he goes to Nineveh. He didn't want to go. He runs from God. God throws him in the belly of a whale for a few days. He comes out, you know, says, well, Jonah, if you change your mind, you've got to think I'll go. He goes to Nineveh to preach the gospel half-heartedly, you know, kind of like the proverbial vacuum cleaner salesman that goes up to the door and says, you don't want to really buy a vacuum cleaner, do you? And, and he goes into Nineveh saying, you guys don't really want to repent and get your heart right with God, do you? And, and they said, yes, 
Yes, we do. And the people of Nineveh repented. They cried out to God. They, they, they made their hearts right with God. And God postponed His judgment. And you know what Jonah did? He got upset about it. He was like an evangelist saying, Man, we had a thousand people come forward in our evangelistic meeting. And I'm mad about it. Jonah was upset. And Jonah went out on the side of this hill to overlook the city to see if either they would change their mind or God would change his mind. You remember the story of how this little gourd grew up and provided him some shade? And then, then God caused an east wind to come along, dried the gourd up, and the gourd died. And Jonah goes ballistic, man. The guy totally freaks out. And he just, he's upset about this gourd. And I remember reading that as a new believer. And I thought, this man is seriously mentally imbalanced. What is he doing writing a book of the Bible? I could not understand how Jonah was so concerned about this gourd. Well, then, some years ago, I had my own gourd experience. And here we are in the midst of this civil war. We're under martial law, which meant that after a certain hour in the evening, you could not go outside or you'd be shot on sight. And we had a little chihuahua puppy dog that had grown up with our girls. Ugly as sin, this little dog. But it been a part of the family for a long time. And one night, this little dog got sick. We could not go to the vet because we could not go outside the house. We, we couldn't even go down to the corner pharmacy and get some basic medicine because you could not leave the house or be shot. And as the evening wore on, the dog got sicker and sicker, and my wife and I, sensing what was going to happen, we told the girls to go upstairs to the room. They were still kind of little at the time. And my wife and I sat there for the next two hours and watched this little chihuahua dog die. And we were really upset about it. We were just totally bummed out over the fact this little chihuahua dog died. And I sat there in my easy chair in the living room, feeling sorry for myself on the verge of tears over this dumb little chihuahua dog. And it was about that time, and he didn't speak audibly or anything like that, but it was about that time that, that God got a hold of my heart. And he said, hey, son, you hear those, uh, you hear those bombs out there? You hear that weapons fire? You see, it was the same old thing. We used to joke about the 7 o'clock at night bomb. 7 o'clock at that time was when the, the martial law kicked into gear, and it seemed like every night at that time the terrorists would set off a bomb and go, oh, yeah, the 7 o'clock bomb, right on, right on schedule again tonight. And it became so much old hat. God says, uh, did it ever occur to you that there are living people on the other end of those sounds? People who have souls? many of whom are destined for an eternity without Christ. And, and you're sitting around your living room crying about a chihuahua puppy dog that died. And it was at that point in my life that I began to get a little empathy for Jonah and began to understand how it is that we get so attached to things, to objects, to dogs and cats and horses and everything else in the world and don't really give a rip about people who will last forever somewhere. And we have the answer. It was about that time that God began to do some overhauling in my life and, and began to readjust my own vision a little bit. It was about that time that God began to straighten out some things in my life because I had grown spiritually nearsighted. Peter talked about that in Second Peter chapter 1. He talked about people who have forgotten where they've come from and they cannot see afar off. They have spiritual myopia, spiritual nearsightedness. And I was suffering from that. 
You know, the other day I saw a passage in the Gospel of Mark that just hit me in a way that I'd never... I'd read this thing a zillion times and I'd never really seen it in this light before. It's the story where Jesus healed this blind man. But you remember how he, he spit in the mud and, you know, made some little... You know, spit in the dirt and made some mud and put the mud on the guy's eyes and, and said, what do you see? And he said, I, I see men as trees. And, and then Jesus touched him again. You remember that story how Jesus touched him twice? And of course, I've taught on that, preached on that so many times. And you talk about how Jesus never healed anybody the same way twice because he didn't want anybody to focus on the method. He wanted them to focus on the messenger. And, and you know, if he didn't, you know, if he, he spit and made mud every time he healed somebody, he would have the, you know, Jehovah spitters and the, you know, the, the, the seventh day mutters and all this type of stuff. And, but he, he always, he always did it a different way. And when you get focused on a passage of scripture like that, sometimes, you go to it and you just don't see anything else. You see what you've always seen before. And I was reading through that passage the other day and I got to focusing on the blind man. Now think about this for just a second. Jesus touched him and said, what do you see? He said, well, I see men as trees. Now many times God uses trees in the Bible to symbolize men, either collectively as nations or individually as people. A lot of comparisons, by the way, between trees and men in the Bible. And, and he said, I, I see men as trees. In other words, he, he couldn't see them clearly. But then Jesus touched him again. And the Bible says, And he saw every man clearly. You know what that spoke to me? It spoke to me again of a need to go back to that basic position of brokenness before God. I find a lot of times, especially when we're praying for missions, you know, we'll get in our little mission groups and whatnot, and, and, and great, and I encourage you to do that, but sometimes I find myself falling into this category. And dear God, we want to pray today for the 83.7% Burmese who have never had the opportunity to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what we're doing? We're praying for men as if they were trees sometimes. We're praying statistics. We're praying information. We've got all the little church growth statistics all arranged and everything in order. And so we talk about our plans. There's 83.7% that have never heard. So we're going to go in and at the end of five years, we're going to reach 64.2%. And all these... But wait a minute, wait a minute, guys. Time out. What we need is another touch from the Lord Jesus Christ in order that we might be able to see men not as statistics, but to see every man clearly. You see every man clearly? When you hear about a place like Kenya, do you understand that the 6% Muslim or 9% Muslim or whatever it was and the figures up here, and I was just in Kenya not too long ago, and... And, and beautiful country. In fact, it reminded me an awful lot of Central America, some of the landscape. And does it ever dawn on you that every one of those people is an individual whom God loves? Can you really see every man clearly? You see, folks, the first step in getting a vision from God is, is to come to a point of brokenness before God where it really matters to us that the world is in a bad way, that we have the answer, and, and when we cry out to God and say, God, what are you doing? Brokenness. Now, I want, to, I want you to see the second ingredient, the second element in, in Habakkuk's process of getting this vision from God. And turn over to chapter 2 in the first verse here. Let me read this to you, then I want to try to paraphrase what Habakkuk is saying to some cultural things here that we need to understand. He says, I'll stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I'm reproved. And that really doesn't speak a lot to us in 
uh, the King James Version that I'm reading from here, it, 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 what, what is this watch and tower and all this stuff? In the Middle East, in biblical times, many homes had flat roofs, as they do today. And the reason for that is because in a semi-tropical climate, not too much different than Southern California, in days before air conditioning and how in the world they ever lived, well, what they would do is in the evening, they would go up to the top of their house and they would have a living room affair arranged up there in, in the open where they could pick up the breezes coming in off the Mediterranean. It was a place to cool off. It was a place to sit and to meditate. And, and sometimes they would refer to that as their watch or their tower, the battlements of the house. And it was a place to simply go and to reflect and to meditate. Let, let me paraphrase what Habakkuk's saying here. Habakkuk in the first chapter has had this dialogue with God. God, what are you doing? God, I don't understand this. And God, I don't understand that. And God is providing him with some answers. But, but Habakkuk has, has not had this thing dawn on him yet. And so what Habakkuk is saying here in verse 2 after he's had this dialogue with God, he says, I'm going to go up and I'm going to sit down on top of my house and I'm not going to move until God speaks to me. Now that is a necessary ingredient to getting a vision from God. It is to come to the point in your life when you are so broken and so desperate before God and you get so serious about this thing that you tell God, God, I am not moving until you speak to my heart. Until you let me know what it is that you want to do in and through me. And you know what happened is the result of that God gave to this man a vision. And we know that vision is the book of Habakkuk today. But he got that vision from God, first of all, because he was broken before God, and secondly, because he had the character and he had the discipline and the courage to simply say, God, I'm going to clear up a spot here, and I'm not going to move until I hear from you. Now, young people, listen to me. You're in an age right now where you need to understand where your life is going where you need to have some direction and some vision in your life. Not something that's produced by calculated planning, but something that is initiated by the very Spirit of God that dwells within you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can't draw you a picture of that. I can't give you seven simple steps to getting a vision from God. I can't give you a little process. All that I can do is say, look, you've got to be broken for the need in this world. And you've got to come to the point in your life when you're serious enough to get with God and grab a hold of Him and not let go no matter how long it takes until you get an answer from Him. And you know what? Until you come to that point in your life, you'll not get a vision from God. You may come up with some neat plans and some great ideas, but getting a vision from God involves doing exactly what Habakkuk did. Coming to a position of brokenness brokenness over our own condition, over the condition of the world around us, and, and simply coming to God and saying, God, I'm not going to move until I have met with you and you have given to me your marching orders for my life. You know, vision is an interesting word, and perhaps we should talk a little bit more about it right now. The word vision, as it appears in the English language, as it appears in the English Bible, is a translation of, of several different words in the Hebrew language. In fact, seven Hebrew and one Chaldean words appear in the Old Testament that are translated as vision in our English language. And all of them have to do with, with some form of verbs that talk about seeing, gazing, staring, contemplating. All has to do with our visual function. All of them have to do with seeing something. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, there's a, there's a great verse in, in, in 1 Samuel 9 and verse 9 where it says that the ones that are called prophets in Israel were before time called seers. I want you to think about that for just a second. 
A prophet in the nation of Israel was one who got a word from God. He was one that got a vision from God. And do you know how he got that? He got that by being a seer. He was an individual who was able to see things that others could not see. That's what a vision has to do with, seeing clearly. And he would get this vision by gazing, staring, looking into the mind of God. And what set that individual apart from the rest of the nation of Israel was that ability to stare, to look into, to gaze into the very mind of God and to see things that others could not see. A prophet was a seer. Now, in a New Testament sense, Paul, when he was talking about the Word of God in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he concluded that chapter in verse 16 by saying, We have the mind of Christ. And the vision that I'm talking to you about this morning, as I said earlier, is not some charismatic, spooky, far-out experience, but simply something that results from a man or a woman who has broken before God and who has had the character and the discipline to simply clear off a spot and say, God, I am going to gaze, I'm going to stare, I'm going to look into your mind, into your word, until you speak to me as to what it is that you want to do with my life. That's where vision comes from. It comes from the Word of God. As the Spirit of God causes it to interact with the unique circumstances of your life. Draw your picture of it? I can't do it. Explain it in more detail? I can't do it. That's God's responsibility. But let me tell you that He is more interested in you receiving that vision than you are. And I promise you that when you clear off a spot and take time out of your busy life, and say, God, I'm not going to let go until you tell me what it is in my life that you want to do. You know, it's interesting. One of those Hebrew words that's translated as vision is also at times correctly translated as mirror. That's interesting because James compares the Word of God to a mirror. And as you stare into the mirror of the Word of God... It reveals to you what's inside you, and it reveals to you what's inside God. It's, a, it's, it's an incredible power here. Vision comes from waiting upon God, seeing what God wants to do in your life. And I believe with all of my heart that God wants to give to each and every one of you here today a personal vision of supernatural proportions. I don't believe that God needs any more mediocre people. I think we have our quota of mediocre believers in the world today. I think we're full up. And I believe that God has a vision for you of supernatural proportion, something so incredible, you're going to look at that thing and say, God, I can't do that. And he'll say, precisely. And that's why I've laid it on your heart, because you can't do it. You're going to have to trust me to do it through you. Now, there's an interesting step that is often left out. And I want you to see it here in verse 2 of Habakkuk chapter 2. He said, the Lord answered me. You see, he's broken, goes up, sits down, says, God, I'm not moving until you speak. And God says, all right, I'll speak to you. The Lord answered him and said, write the vision and make it plain upon tables. 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 Thinking in Spanish here. Make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. A very important ingredient in getting a vision from God is to write the vision down. Write the vision down. Now, let me explain to you what's happening in Habakkuk's case. God says, Habakkuk, I'm going to give you a vision, but I want you to write the vision down. Write it in tables of stone, Habakkuk. I want everybody to be able to see this. Now, you know what Habakkuk was doing? He's putting his life on the line. 
He is writing down what God's going to do. And according to the instruction that God gave in Deuteronomy chapter 18, if 100% of what Habakkuk says does not come to pass, then God has not sent him, and God says, take him out and kill him. God says, Habakkuk, I want you to write this thing down in tables of stone. I want everybody to be able to see it. And so Habakkuk is taking a step of faith, and he's going out, and ahead of time, he's saying, this is what God is going to do. He's putting his life on the line here, quite, quite literally. But he's writing the vision down. Some of the things that you saw in the video this morning, when, when I first came to our church from Central America, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I'd been out of the United States culture for a long time, and, and, and I, I felt more a foreigner than anything else, and, and, and I didn't know the guys that I was going to be working with. And so I took them out on a retreat, and we spent about three days together, and I said, okay, guys, I said, here we are. <laughs> I didn't choose you, and you didn't choose me, but we better learn to get along with each other, and we're not going anywhere until we get a clear vision from God as to where He wants this church to go. And so we spent about three days in prayer and, and study of the Word of God, and, and God gave us a threefold vision. What you copy in everybody's hand, I said, look, here it is. This is where we are going. You know what that did? It motivated people. Now, now look at this. That he may run that readeth it. God says, Habakkuk, I want you to write this thing down because if you write it down, then other people can read it and that's going to motivate them. It will cause them to run, that he may run that readeth it. When you have a vision that is genuinely from God, something that you have from His Word, something that God has done in your life, and you can verbalize that thing and you can put it out in black and white and say, here it is. You know what that does to the people around you? It motivates them. It charges them. It encourages them. I was... Uh, my undergraduate education was primarily in a, in a state college. I was a philosophy student. You know why I was a philosopher? I loved philosophy. You know why? Because I could fake it real good. And I loved philosophy classes because you could go into them, you know, and, and uh, you, you could just blow a lot of smoke and sound philosophical, and the professor would go, oh, 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 yes, well. And, and I got real good at that. I mean, sometimes I wouldn't even have to read the material. I, I just knew how to sound philosophical. I learned the lingo. And so I, I came up with this neat way to just kind of, you know, coast my way through school. Well, one time, I, was, I think I was about a junior status at that time, and I got a hold of a professor who was a little bit smarter than that. And so uh, we were having an oral exam. And so he says, uh, Mr. Adams, would you please stand up and would you answer the following question? Well, he gave me some question. I think we were studying about Nietzsche's Superman or something like that, you know. And I hadn't read the stuff. And, and I was prepared to just bluff my way through it. So I stood up and I started going on rambling about this and this and that and all, one thing and the other, just sounding very philosophical. And then I ran out of steam. I mean, I just totally ran out of gas. And, and so I, I stopped for a minute, and I made a fatal mistake. I said, well, Professor, I said, uh, I know what I want to say. I just can't put it in words. Great line, right? Maybe you've used that before. I know what I want to say. I just can't put it in words. He stood up at that point. He said, Mr. Adams, please sit down and shut up. He said, if you cannot verbalize something, it is because you do not understand it. And the reason that you have nothing to say is because you know nothing. One of the greatest lessons I ever learned in school. If you cannot verbalize something, if you can't write something down, it's because you don't understand it. Let me, please don't do this when anybody's looking, but let me just give you a little test here. How many of you could go back right now, sit down in a quiet place, and write out God's plan for your life as you see it right now? You see, you ask most believers, well, you know, what, what's God doing in your life? Well, I just love Jesus, and I just want to do whatever He wants me to do and follow Him. 
And that's great. That's a great attitude. That's a good place to begin. But wait a minute. Is there not a God in heaven? Is there not a God who is interested in the affairs of men, who has the hairs on our head counted, who sees every sparrow fall, and you mean to tell me that you don't understand what God is doing in this world and you don't understand even more what He's doing in your life? Can you write it out? If you can't, it's because you don't know. And that's what I'm saying, guys. It's just about time that you come to the point in your life where life gets so serious, you say, wait a minute, this thing is for real. God, what's going on in this world? And where do I fit in? And God, I'm going to clear off a space here and I want to grab a hold of you and I'm not going to let go until you tell me what you want me to do. And when He does, and He will, write it down. Write it down. And that will motivate you. That will keep you between the white lines. It will guide you in every single area of your life. It will guide your future spouse. It will guide your future plans. It will guide your future decisions when you can verbalize clearly what it is that God wants you to do in your life. It's not complex. It's not easy, but it's simple. Brokenness. Waiting upon God until He speaks through His Word and then committing it to writing. I keep a book with me all the time that when, when, God, when God reveals something to me, my mind is so bad, I write it down. I don't want to lose anything. And I've lost a lot of great messages at 3 o'clock in the morning. You know, you have bad pizza, you wake up, God speaks to your heart. Say, Man, that's a great message, God. I'll write that down first thing in the morning. It's gone. It's gone. When God speaks to you, write it down. Great habit for you to develop. What is God going to do in your life? Folks, there's a world out there. Where do you fit in that vision? Now, one final thing I want you to see. Look in, look in verse 3. He says, For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie, though it tarry. Wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. And then, of course, this great verse that's quoted three times in the New Testament, in Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Just as you waited for God to give you the vision, once God gives you that vision and you can verbalize it, you can commit it to writing, then you do the same thing. You wait on God to fulfill that vision. And it may seem like it's never going to come, but it will surely come. Wait for it. It will surely come. You know, time is not critical with God. Everything depends upon who initiated it. I remember one time when I was still pastoring in Central America and, and God really blessed our ministry. We had a, a tremendous church in San Salvador and we were affecting all of Central America and even some other places. And I was in Amsterdam. This has been many years ago. And there was, a, there was a friend of mine who had an evangelist friend. He was one of these guys that was just a real man of God. He's since gone home to be with the Lord. This man was suffering from seven mortal diseases at the same time and, and had lived for several years. The doctors couldn't even explain it. Every day he got up and lived, it was just a miracle. And because of that, he had, had learned something about faith. And this man had a tremendous ministry. And I, I wanted to meet him. And uh, my friend wanted to introduce me. And we'd, we'd heard about each other. And I was, I was still, I, I was a little nervous about this because he was one of those guys who could go into a church and just, he was like a human x-ray machine. You know, he just looked right through you. And I was, I was afraid. I mean, the night before I met him, I wanted to confess sin, you know, make sure the life was all clean. I didn't want him to see anything. And I, I met him, and you think of an evangelist, and you think of these fiery guys, and he was just a little meek guy sitting there. 
Didn't hardly say a word. Hi, how you doing? He didn't say anything. And my friend said, well, brother so-and-so, this is, this, is, this is Jeff, and I've told you about him, and all the things that are going on in Central America, and this 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 and this. And this. And, mm-hmm, praise God. And then my friend said, oh, I've got an appointment. Would you take brother so-and-so back to his hotel? Me? I can't even talk to the guy. <laughs> okay, so we decided to go back to the hotel. And I said, well, come on, because he, he couldn't travel by himself. He was very, very weak because of all the sickness that he had. And we went and got on one of the trams in Amsterdam, and we were going back toward his hotel. And we're sitting there, and I'm going, oh, man, this guy's probably looking through me. He's seeing all the, the sin and rottenness in my life, and he's getting ready to eat my lunch. And we're sitting down on this trolley. He hasn't said more than five words, man. This guy has been just as quiet as a clam. And we're sitting on a trolley, and, and all of a sudden he looks at me, and he says, well, Brother Jeff, he says, let me ask you a question. And I go, uh-oh, here it comes, exam time. He says, all these many ministries in El Salvador, all the great things that God is doing there, oh, my, what a blessing. He says, let me ask you a question. Who initiated all of that? And somehow God gave me enough presence of mind to say, well, God did. God initiated that. Big old smile broke out on his face, and he, he leaned back in his chair, and he said, attaboy. Attaboy. And then he went on to teach me, and he taught me something I'll never forget. He said, son, he said, let me tell you something. He says, one of the most important questions in life is who initiates something. Did you begin with a plan and ask God to bless it, or is this something that God put in your heart from the beginning? Did he start it, or did you start it? Wait for God. If He started it, He will finish. When I was going through college, I worked as a radio announcer to work, work my way through school. And we used to have a program we'd play every day. It was called the Earl Nightingale Program, one of the little five-minute gems to start the day with. And, you know, I was about 20 years old at the time, I guess. I was bored to tears with the thing. And, and so we'd play it every day. One day, he said something that stuck. Here's what he said. That's all he said. He said, you know, in any situation of life, there's only two ways that you can look at it. Either you can or you can't. And he said, whatever you decide, you're absolutely right. Now think about that. I did. Man, that thing stuck to me. If you say, I can't, he said, you're right. And if you say, I can, you're right. Later, when I became a believer, I began to apply that to the Word of God. And I saw the twelve spies that Moses sent into the land of, of Palestine. And they came back and ten of them said, ah, Hey, we just don't think we can trust God. We don't think God's going to give us a land right now. You know what? He didn't. They were right. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, God can do it. And you know what? They were right. He did. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, any circumstance in your life, whatever vision God gives you, whatever God lays on your heart, listen, young people, there's only two ways you can look at it. Either God's going to do it or He's not. And whatever you decide, you'll be absolutely right. Was your decision. Just wait on it. Broken, waiting for the vision, putting it down in words, and waiting for God to do it. What's God going to do in your life? Our Heavenly Father, this morning, we want to thank You for being a God that relates to us personally, a God that we can talk to, a God that we can be honest with, a God that we don't have to put on airs with. And honestly, God, I want to ask you this morning that you would challenge young hearts with a, a vision of what you want to do in this world and specifically through them, each one. Lord, it's such an exciting time to be alive. I thank you for this privilege. 
And I pray that over the course of the next several months, the next several years of, of each life here, that we would all be able to clearly and specifically define, delineate, to verbalize, to write out exactly what it is that you're doing in our lives. And God, by your grace, may we wait upon you to fulfill it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.